All right, guys. Episode 13 of the Four Lifters by Lifters podcast. Uh, we have a, a longtime friend and guest, Brandon DeCruz, with us today. Uh, so Brandon's been involved in the fitness industry. Obviously, he's still very jacked. Uh, you know, he does some some modeling, some competitions. I think I met you when you were with GeForce, right? Yeah, Is that what we talked about? A competition yeah. prep company as well as a supplement company. Um, that was back in 2013 or 2014, so it's been a while. Yeah, yeah. You you came in when we were like really tiny in the in the CrossFit gym. Um, so talk a little bit about like your your history. Um, you know, competing. I feel like your uh, trajectory within fitness in general is is actually like really common, and I think it's something that a lot of people um, actually aspire to do. So that's actually why we have you on today. Awesome. All right. Um, so I've been involved in the fitness industry for the past 12 years. Um, essentially, how I got into it was that I was a competitive athlete um, all throughout high school. I ended up getting an injury and also developing an injury. Did you play disorder. basketball? I did not. not no? Time, I, was actually, I was actually quite short growing up. Now, guys, you don't know. I'm like six foot two, so, so fairly, fairly tall. But um, at the time, I developed an eating disorder. I was uh, doing competitive uh, martial arts okay. uh, as well as track and cross country. And it was just very weight dependent on a lot of things, trying to qualify for different um, regionals and things of that sort. And being injured, I ended up developing an eating disorder because I didn't have that ability to expend calories. So I started getting really focused on nutrition and ended up uh, spiraling. So during the rehabilitation process, uh, I found weight training. My PT at the time had introduced me to just some functional training and some stuff to reinforce mobility and re-strengthen my, my issue that I had a back injury of. And um, at that point, I started looking at food as fuel. And, you know, being a young guy, I started looking to the magazines for um, advice on nutrition, training, things of that sort. And then I got really into and obsessed with supplementation. And that's what kind of started things. So by 15, I started at my first part-time job within the supplement industry. I worked at GNC. Um, and you and everybody was, else. Yeah, right? It's a, a big start for a lot of people. So I did that all throughout high school. I ended up um, running different independent shops. Uh, and did that throughout all of college while I was studying law. So initially, my, my plan was to go to law school. And uh, a month after graduation, I ended up getting a, uh, actually, prior to graduation, like we were saying about with GeForce, I ended up working for a small company that was just regional. We were only based out of the Northeast, and it was owned by an IFBB pro as well as a contest prep coach. Uh, so I got even more into the competitive aspect. And that, at that time, I started fitness modeling. So I actually started fitness modeling still in college and way prior to me ever doing any physique competitions. So money in that? Uh, fitness modeling? Yes, but not as much as people think. Um, you know, I've been in men's fitness magazine, muscle and fitness. Uh, there are some monetary incentives, but at the time, I honestly just did it to, to get some exposure, to get some experience. Build and, your um, book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Build a portfolio. And that's when we actually used to go around with hard copy portfolios, unlike today. Yeah. Um, so I got involved with a pretty prominent fitness modeling agency out of New York City. And um, it just got me involved in the industry. I started going to expos and events. And anytime I had a free break, whether it be spring break or I had a weekend free, I would go over to a fitness expo and try to just network with people. I wasn't there really for the athletes. I was honestly there uh, for like the sales directors and stuff and the people that formulated products because I was much more interested into the science and research and development aspect of supplementation. Um, so from there, um, a month after graduation, I ended up getting a job interview with a prominent um, distribution company, which you worked with as well, oh, yeah. called Lone Star Distribution. <clears throat> At the time, they're now Europa Sports. They were the number two largest uh, sports nutrition distributor in the industry. And uh, from there, I started traveling not only the Northeast, but the entire country doing sales, uh, going from like a regional perspective, then to eventually a national perspective. And all the while, 
still involved in fitness modeling. And then in 2015, I started competing and I have competed 13 times since. And you compete in men's physique? Yes, Is men's that, physique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, you know, your path is similar to mine. I, I was competing in college uh, in powerlifting and I started to get obsessed with the supplementation side of things. Yes. And, uh, you know, some things worked, some things didn't. Uh, for me, I was focusing on recovery. When you were looking into supplementation and starting to get obsessed with it, what were you looking for? So initially, I was honestly looking at supplemental ways to um, supplement and you know, get dietary interventions for my diet. Cause like I said, I started with, with an eating disorder. So things that I was looking towards were weight gainers or easy way to get calories in and also protein, um, sources and things of that sort. And then I got really into, I actually have ADD or I had, it was really bad when I was a kid and, um, they wanted to prescribe me Adderall, Vyvanse, things of that sort. So my parents were not about modern medicine and I'm very fortunate in the fact that that, that was the case. So I started getting really into nootropics and you'll see that in a lot of the products that I formulated both at companies like Innova Farm and at Nutribio and other companies that I've worked with. So I was trying to find dietary interventions for neurotransmitter imbalances that I had or for cognition focus, um, brain development, things of that sort. So it was like two ends of the spectrum. I had my performance supplements, but then I had like my cognitive supplements and then I was really into health because I was trying, I had a lot of um, mineral and vitamin deficiencies that obviously incurred as a result of being, you know, in a caloric deficit for so long um, during my competitive days. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely opposite purpose of what I was looking into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then most, honestly, <clears throat> most kids that they start out younger, high school, college, it's all performance-based. And although I had a huge interest in that pre-workouts and fat burners and, you know, um, we had different muscle building products and things of that sort, that was never really my emphasis. Did you find stuff actually worked? Um, it's hard to say. Honestly, when I first started, say like high school days, we're talking like 2006, I got into supplementation. Uh, I think a lot of that stuff was placebo. If we really look at the formulas, we peel back the labels yeah. and stuff more. We were in the proprietary blend age. So we didn't know what we were doing. And getting. the amino spiking ages. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so we had a lot of, um, you know, imbalances in nitrogen retention and things of that sort. But um, anecdotally, I thought it worked. And then as I dove deeper and deeper into the research and got away from the things like your MD or your Flex magazine, started realizing, hey, this isn't really, you know, these formulas aren't really up to, you know, up to standard. And so I got really into making my own formulas. And that's eventually why I ended up at G-Force was I was the kid in college that was making his own pre-workouts with bulk powders um, and raw materials. And everyone would come to me and we'd literally, I would do stuff and then we would just flavor it with Mia. So it was like I had my own like little, you know, lab experiment in my in my dorm room. Yeah, Ben and I, uh, when we first opened, this is probably uh, late 2014, early 2015, uh, we bought every raw ingredient you could think of that was in a pre-workout. We put it in mason jars and uh, we had a scale and we would make our own pre-workouts for ourselves because we're in a gym at the time. And then we would go work out. And it was the coolest experience because you got to see what, you know, at the time, I think uh, we're dosing a ton of new peptin and everything. And uh, but that stuff would make you speed like crazy. The Rasatan family, things of that sort were really prominent. then, And you would crash like no other. And, uh, you know, so like you're just figuring out different doses and, you know, you're, you're a lab rat at that point, but it's fun. I think that's the best way to do it. And honestly, I still formulate for companies now and I still do it from the perspective of I look at the research and then I take it and I try it in, on myself. And that's where we have a disconnection with a lot of companies. Now it's becoming a little bit uh, more um, common for athletes to run companies. But a few years ago, it was just guys that had investment money that wanted to make it big in the supplement industry that was continually growing, you know, X percentage a year. So they didn't really know if their formulas worked. They were just based off of whatever the consumer data was showing. And I've never formulated it like that. It's always been with the base of, of research in mind, but then also combining 
empirical evidence and anecdotal experience together and seeing the blend of both. Well, that's kind of a, a big gripe that I have. Um, and it's something that I know Jason Arntz talks about a lot, but you know, the, the clinical data for, let's just pick citrulline, right? Everybody says six grams, right? Yeah. So the entire industry dose is six grams. Well, don't you think six grams for me is different than six grams for you? Without a doubt. You have to look at things from a, a body weight perspective, a, a, a specific individualized response perspective. What, just like with caffeine, we're looking at, you know, between three and six milligrams per kilogram and the research. But for some people that are, you know, heavy caffeine excretors or fast metabolizers, they're going to need six milligrams because their body's bypassing the enzyme so quickly. Whereas if you you look at someone that is uh, sensitive to caffeine that has really fresh adrenal receptors three milligrams might be over the top yeah i just uh plus we're not even including all the other things that are paired with it within the pre-workout and that can change yeah and that can change everything as well uh so i think the the whole clinical data uh is just actually uh hurting the supplement industry mm-hmm. more than helping it just in some aspects everybody yeah. just has the same thing 3.2 grams of beta alanine, you know, you have 300 milligrams of caffeine and you have six grams of citrulline and you see a hundred of those pre-workouts on the market. If you go on Amazon, they're yeah, almost they're all so the redundant. same pre-workout. Yeah. And it's just, you know, they're just different labels. And then you see more intricate formulas, uh, limitless, Absolutely. which to me is like the OG focus formula. Uh, you know, we had that original orange flavor, which I thought was amazing. Uh, you know, we sold that back in like 2015. Um, yeah. You know, I thought that was such a great formula, but it's a proprietary blend, and that, yeah. that scares people sometimes. Mm-hmm. Partially a proprietary blend, but at the same time, we also have to – I'm always very hesitant. I'm very into the research. I'm very into studying and, and really looking at research and development, and I do set that as the foundation to formulation. But at the same time, I, I really do caution people, whether they're consumers or they're supplement formulators themselves, to realize that what worked previously is and served the foundation can still work now. So, for instance, with our Limitless product, that formula has never changed since 2015. So it's been, I always call it like the, the old steady. Like you could always rely on it. It's it's a reliable product. It'll get the illicit effect. And yes, it's partially prop blended besides the four grams of citrulline and the one gram of agmentine, but, and 200 milligrams of caffeine, obviously, but it's still giving you that same cognitive um, enhancement, that same tunnel vision that it did years ago. So you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of customers that come in and they just, uh, you know, I haven't had this in a while and they grab it. And, uh, you know, just because they know what it's going to deliver. Uh, there are any, like, ingredients out there that you just head over heels about? Honestly, from a performance perspective, I say the only things that I'm very, I'm always going to utilize within my programming or within my own supplement regimen are going to be creatine, but not only for the ATP benefits, mitochondria benefits, but for the uh, neurological benefits, especially in terms of looking at like the Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's research and things of that sort. That is something I think everyone should include, whether it be three to five grams, uh, every single day, keep the cell saturated. That's something that I will always include within my program, uh, or within my personal supplementation caffeine as well. Um, I do believe that you should have a cyclical approach to caffeine, uh, just so that you're, you're still getting a performance benefit, but from like a cognitive perspective, um, or even from a performance perspective I, I think it's you you can't doubt the data that's out there and also the anecdotal experience caffeine's the number one used you know and abused drug in the world so i think those two are, are definitely staples i am a huge fan of citrulline i do like nitrates things of that sort but those are all secondary yeah. i have my foundations um i believe in magnesium supplementation i see about i, I look at blood work i'm also an, an online nutrition coach and physique coach i see i would say uh, i did a case study recently and i saw 84 percent of my clients were magnesium deficient in their blood work um i also bring, believe in like copper supplementation um zinc supplementation things of that sort that are 
people don't really look at as supplements. You know, we're looking at minerals or I'm looking at vitamin D yeah. and things like that. But I think those are the foundation that you build. That's the bottom of the base. And then you build from the bottom up. People look at me like I have three heads when I tell them I've been taking ZMA for 10 years. Yeah, and I, I have I as well. It. The only times, honestly, that I go without it, and I honestly notice how impactful it is, was we recently had, I don't know if you remember, we had ZMX out for about two months. And I just neglected to buy it from elsewhere, and it's just, I, I really like our formula. Um, it's very the sources, Yeah, yeah the, the B6 complex that we use, or the, the type, um, the magnesium uh, bicalcinate, and things of that sort. And I noticed the detrimental effect when I stopped taking it to my sleep quality. And uh, although I didn't run blood work in between that, that one and a half to two month period, I noticed certain things were off. So it's almost like sometimes you don't know how good something is until you don't have it. It's also your product of routine. And yes. a lot of people that aren't a product of routine, how do you know if something's working for mm -hmm. you? And that's, that's another big thing that we see in the supplement industry is, you know, people are like, oh, I don't notice if this is working or not. Well, sometimes I mean, they don't give it long enough. Are you working? Like, you know, are, are you consistent with your diet? Are you consistent with your training? And how's that going? Um, you know, so we see that back and forth a lot. Uh, you know, for me, I, I think, you know, zinc, zinc and magnesium is very popular uh, in my book. I always have a, a container of it at home. Uh, but some of the weird ingredients, too, like I, I absolutely love alpha GPC. And, and as do I, as uh, from an acetylcholine perspective, I think that's the number one. Uh, second to that, I really do like CDP choline yeah. uh, as well. Yeah, I, I find like if you take alpha GPC, uh, you'll see like uh, your cognition will increase for like 10 to 15 minutes. Yeah, it's very short, but you pair it with like a little bit of caffeine or Hooperzine. Yeah, yeah, as and, well. and you're just you're good to go. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a completely different feeling. And that goes back to the synergy we were talking about before. You know, you take the, the ingredient by itself. It's one thing. And then you pair it with just a little bit of something else. And it's a whole different you know feeling within your body. Absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, that translates over to the performance and the recovery and, and all that stuff. Uh, what about recovery? Do you have anything that's like, you know, top notch for you? Recovery first and foremost is always going to come from a nutritional perspective. Uh, I have sold supplements for 12 years, guys, but I will tell you that nutrition is my number one priority when it comes to um, enhancing recovery. Other than that, I will take a lot of things to activate my parasympathetic nervous system because we should really only be in a sympathetic state or a fight or flight response state while we're training two hours a day in the gym. But if you really look at it, there's so many people that are sympathetic dominant. They're fight or flight. They're tired and wired all day. They have sleeping issues. They have uh, issues with high cortisol levels. So I'm really looking at compounds or ingredients like KSM 66. I'm a huge fan. My previous brand, I pushed to bring that out because I use it so frequently. So I'm looking at about a 600 milligram dose of KSM 66 post-workout, 200 milligrams grams of L-theanine. I'm looking at two to three grams of glycine to really, uh, that's going to help with glycogen restoration as well as turning on your parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, I usually combine it with an amino product because I don't do protein immediately post-workout. Um, so I'll do aminos with some estrogen, increase the absorption of L-leucine. Let's, um, uh, let's cut you there. Why don't you do protein post-workout? Just because I know I'm going to have a whole food meal within an hour. That's just my perspective. Now, if I'm going to go without it, say that I'm traveling or I'm in a, in a time situation. I'm going to use a hydrolyzed protein or a, a whey protein isolate. And I worked for many companies that sold very high quality, some of the best in the industry proteins. And I do believe in protein. Uh, I use it pre-workout because I train very early in the morning. Um, however, I'm really prioritizing whole food meals. Um, so that's where I'll use an amino product like our recovery EAA post-workout with all those other ingredients. I'll also do a dose of magnesium as well. So you're subbing, um, you're subbing the aminos for the protein yes. temporarily. I'm just trying to help with that, that muscle yeah. protein uh, synthesis and that mTOR activation that you would get from a complete amino acid profile or from essentials themselves. So uh, just to touch on that for a second, uh, there's some recent studies uh, showing that amino acids aren't actually stimulating 
uh, mTOR and MPS. Have you seen any of that? I've seen for the branch chains that they're not completely stimulating because you do need the other, you know, six essential amino acids. Uh, are you referring to essentials do not stimulate MPS and mTOR? Uh, I think it was just the branch chains. Yeah, and so that, that's absolutely. Study. That, is, that is conclusive. So that's why I use Recovery EA has all nine essential amino acids plus a hydration complex in there. So I'm making sure that I don't use just a branch chain product. And we did previously have a branch chain product. You guys carried it and we, dis, we discontinued it. Yeah. Okay. I was just uh, curious what your thoughts were because there's a lot of people going back and forth. Um, you know, anecdotally, uh, you know, I still feel better when I take a branch chain amino acid yeah, absolutely. product. So I think that there's probably some science that might there be is merit. inclusive. From a fuel that. substrate perspective, say, like, I'll always recommend people like this. Uh, branch chains are going to be a little bit cheaper. And do they have utility? Absolutely. And like I said, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So just because research has disproved it but if you feel an effect that doesn't mean that you just go against it because research says one thing now if you look at it from a, a fuel perspective if you use branch chains you should mostly use it intra-workout mm -hmm. so it's going to help with a fuel substrate perspective uh, perspective give you a little bit more energy uh, and then if you're really trying to enhance recovery and stimulate muscle protein synthesis lower muscle protein degradation or breakdown which happens while tearing down muscle fiber then that's when you want to use a complete uh, essential amino acid pro profile of all nine essentials so let's uh, let's dip into nutrition a little bit, since I think you're just as passionate about that. It Absolutely. sounds like uh, I've never seen you when you weren't lean. I mean, even like right now, your arms are like 3D, right? You have like that look to you. It's <laughs> well, cool. I'm doing photo shoots right now, so uh, <laughs> so don't think that this is but, all the time. But it is almost all the time, though. I mean, you're never not lean. Uh, I I try to keep myself. Uh, I believe in being a walking representation of my lifestyle, what I preach from a supplemental perspective, from a, a nutrition perspective. I, I believe in walking this. So, absolutely. How are you getting there? Like, what, what's your diet philosophies? Um, you know, how are you structuring everything? Okay, so f what my recommendations are, are are different than what I do myself. And that's because you have to factor in the inter-individuality of each person. So for me, in my perspective, I take a lower fat, a higher carb approach. That's because I have issues with um, secreting bile acids. So my assimilation of fats is is a little bit decreased. So I, I'll have to use a lot of like uh, digestive enzymes, ox bile, delimonene to help with the assimilation of fats. So when I do a diet, it's it's protein equated. So it's always going to be for me personally, if I'm in a, a gaining phase or an off-season phase, I'm going to use one gram of protein per pound of body weight. Uh, if I'm in a deficit, research has shown that you want to increase that a little bit uh, because you are obviously more in a muscle protein br uh, breakdown position. And so you're more susceptible to, to losing muscle tissue. So I'll go up to about 1.2 to 1.5 grams per um, pound of body weight. From there, I'm going to set my minimum threshold of fat. So if you look at the research, it's between 0.3 and 0.4 grams per pound of body weight. So I'll set that, and then the rest of my calories will be from carbohydrates. So it's going to be, in the off-season, a higher-carb approach. I may be up to five, 600 grams of carbs. But that's in, why your protein can dip down, right? Is because yes, the carbohydrates are absolutely protein-sparing. Protein sparing. Yeah. Now, in perspective, let's look at the inverse of that. During a deficit, which you generally see me dieted down, so right now what I'm doing is uh, I'm currently in a reverse dieting situation. I had just done some photo shoots and stuff. But uh, previous to... Um, the photo shoots and to the reverse diet, I was doing about uh, between fluctuating between 100 to 185 grams of carbs, depending on the day. I do calorie cycle or, or carb cycle, um, and then doing 1.2 to 1.5 grams, depending on what the calorie cycle is. So the days I have higher carbs, a little bit lower protein. 
days I have um, a little bit lower carbs, higher protein, and then that fat always stays the same for hormonal balance because we see a lot of metabolic adaptation. So that's the down regulation of your metabolism in relation to the weight that you've lost and the energy deficit that you've induced. So with that, you see decreases in leptin hormone. You see increases in ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone. You see decreases in testosterone or in, in females, you see decreases in estrogen, and that manifests itself where guys have low libido when they're lean or women suffer from amenorrhea or the uh, cessation of their menstrual cycle. Um, so with that, I'm trying to keep that minimum fat, fat threshold because it is a molecule cholesterol and it's going to help with hormone production. Um, from there, I do a calorie cycle. So it's based on what body part I'm training. If it's a training day or non-training day, if it's a, a non-training day, I don't need that fuel substrate. I don't need those carbohydrates. So I'm going to go lower calorie and help to bring down that deficit a little bit more and make up for it. So it's mostly protein and fats and some fats on your off. Yes. So I'm using more of a nutrient timing approach. So for instance, on my training days, all my carbs are going to be in the peri-workout window. If I'm training very early in the morning, I notice I get a serotonin response from carbohydrate ingestion, uh, which a lot of people will notice if they do carbohydrates before the bed, they sleep better. So if I'm in the morning and I train generally around 6 a.m., I don't want to take carbohydrates pre-workout. So what I'll do is a protein source and a quick digesting fat source like an MCT. I get that readily absorbed into the body. And then I'll have my first carbohydrate feeding intra-workout. I'll do post-workout and post-post-workout. So my three carbohydrate feedings will be spread out over those those periods. Uh, on a non-training day, it's just proteins and fats and then, you know, veggies. So that will be my only, you know, indirect carb sources. Are you familiar with Shelby Sarns? Very familiar. Yes. I, uh, so when I was in college, I, I would download eBooks all the time and, uh, you know, I didn't have a, a huge social life because I was powerlifting. I didn't want to mess that up by drinking and partying too much. Uh, so I read tons of eBooks and most of them were powerlifting, but he was popular on elite FTS. Without so that's the only reason I knew who he was. I wasn't really into bodybuilding. And, uh, so I had this eBook and I went back and, and reread it. Um, right when quarantine started and uh, I tried his lean bulking protocol which was okay. carb cycling mm -hmm. and uh, I lost 20 pounds increase in calories and it was the leanest I ever was in my life hey, and your nutrient partitioning was probably incredible and if you tested your I, blood sugar your blood sugar regulation was probably through the roof but it was a fun diet mm -hmm. you know so for me uh, the carb cycling approach was eating the same foods in different portions yes you know so my my food variety wasn't that great you know some days you know your your high fat days I eat whole eggs Right. And my uh, low fat days, I would eat, um, you know, I, I would have egg whites, you know, so that was like the difference there, but it's still the same overall source of, of food. And uh, it was just fun for me, but it's also hard to keep up with. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. So, so that's why I say my recommend or my personal dietary principles aren't always what I recommend because I believe that the best diet is the one that you'll follow. Like, you know, I, I came out to the seminar with Stan Efforting last year that yeah, you guys held yeah, yeah. and I'm a huge believer in his, not in his diet, but in his philosophy behind the diet. Let's make something sustainable, adherable, and something that you're going to implement day in and day out consistently. So I'd rather with a client have them be 80%, 80% clean diet and have a little bit of junk here and there or a little bit of free food or, or fun food or things that really help them stick to the diet than be 100% clean like I would be. I always have to extrapolate things and realize I've been doing this, I've been modeling for eight, nine years, I've been dieting just as long and I have different goals. And you're internally motivated differently. Yes. Right? It all like, comes from intrinsic motivation. Yeah, I was actually training uh, yesterday and one of my friends was saying, you know, like I, I went back to the regular gym the other day and I, there was a bunch of big dudes there and it really motivated me. I'm like, 
Really? Like that doesn't do shit for me. Yeah. Like I'm the same whether there's a you know Mr. Olympia next to me or if I'm training completely by myself. I can completely relate to that. And think about the perspective of quarantine. I don't know about yourself, but I, I train by myself in a basement gym this whole time. I'm based out of Jersey, so our Perfect. gyms unfortunately yeah. are still closed. And um, despite the fact that some of my sessions weren't as great just from the capacity that I didn't have a spotter, I didn't have someone there, just from a safety perspective, my training did not change whatsoever. The intensity was still the same. The motivation was still the same. But I'm a creature of habit, so yeah. it's different. But I do understand I have new um, competitors or athletes or clients that come, gen pop clients especially, that they need someone. Uh, they need something there or they need people in that atmosphere. So I have a lot of, honestly, gen pop clients that I have do CrossFit. And it's not that I promote CrossFit. It's that they need that group mentality or that yeah. group atmosphere. And if it works for you, it's keeping you physically active. You're moving. You know, it's it's increasing caloric expenditure. It's helping you get muscular contractions. It's increasing that glute 4 activation that we can enhance carbohydrate, uh, carbohydrate uptake. That's all well and good. You're still getting cardiovascular benefits. You're still getting aerobic and anaerobic benefits. So if that's the method um, of training that you enjoy, I'd rather you do that than me put a bodybuilding routine on you and you not do it at all. Yeah. I, so when people come to you and they tell you that they need that external motivation, um, do you know like right off the bat that they're probably not going to be a competitor? Not always. So here's my thing. I always try to put myself in, in a different perspective. I try to relate to them. So if someone comes to me and they're newer to the gym or they're newer to the process of dieting, nutrition, things of that sort, I realize that we have to start with where they're at. Right. So in my mind, I'm not thinking 10 steps ahead. I'm thinking, where are they at right now? What are their current nutrition habits? What are their current training habits? And sometimes the person in the process of learning, they develop such a passion that they want to be a competitor. And they come to me years later and they say, hey, listen, we've been doing this for two, three years. And now I want to be a competitor. One of my closest friends, he's competed multiple times now. He's one of my athletes. He started as, as a CrossFitter and he had no competitive aspirations either within CrossFit or bodybuilding. He didn't like bodybuilding at all. He thought the physiques were off-putting, but all of a sudden, men's physique came out. And he said, you know, I kind of have, like, we had done a photo shoot uh, for his CrossFit gym, uh, for his CrossFit box, and um, he got really lean. And he said, I feel like I could probably do that. And I said, 100%, he's, he's natural. So um, we, we put him in an OCB contest the next summer, and it was something for him to shoot for. But initially, had I asked him day one, when we first met up, would you want to be a competitor? Would you want to do what I do? He would have said absolutely not. Probably would have turned him off. Yeah. So I never, I give people always the benefit of the doubt, but there are certain people, my, you know, soccer moms and, and corporate business dads, and I know that that's not their intention, nor is that probably conducive to their lifestyle because, um, honestly, competing isn't healthy. I would never tell you that getting to 4 or 5% body fat, no matter... I believe in taking the most health-oriented approach. So I do something with my athletes that is called the prep before the prep. Uh, I'm trying to get their psychology and their physio physiology in line. And so I'm looking at uh, biofeedback markers. So I'm looking at fasted glucose levels. I'm looking at postprandial blood glucose readings. Um, so the regulation of blood sugar. I'm looking at their uh, blood pressure readings. I'm looking at their resting heart rate. I want to see the aerobic capacity and all things involved, their heart health and things of that sort. So I could put them in a point that, all right, now we're 16 weeks out. We could push you hard on the diet. We could put you hard on the training. If we need to use stimulant, it's not going to increase your blood pressure to an unhealthy range. But there are some people that, you know, even if we did all those, we did dietary, supplemental interventions, and lifestyle interventions, it still wouldn't be healthy because of the construct of their lifestyle. So the first things on my intake form are all about their lifestyle. Let's look at, I can build anyone a nutrition program, and it could be optimal, it could be perfect, but if it's not perfect for their lifestyle, they won't adhere to it, one, and B, it won't be 
the best for them. So it's looking at, yes, nutrition, supplementation, training are the foundation, they're the base, but now I need to look at stress and lifestyle mitigation and look at those factors first because I see those as the bottleneck to everything. It's just interesting that you bring that up. I think almost every um, everybody who's had success in the fitness industry has always said something about when they're healthy, they also look the best. Without a shadow of a doubt. And their body's responsive. Their mind is clear. So it's it's not only from a physiological perspective, but from a psychological perspective. If you don't feel good and you feel run down and you feel like you're, you're wondering why, we've all had those preps or those diets or even for a powerlifting meet where you just feel wrecked. Adrenal-wise, CNS-wise, uh, internally, maybe health-wise, you start noticing things that are a little bit off. You're looking at your blood pressure and it's a little bit high. Uh, and, and it makes you question what you're doing and it also makes you a little hesitant in continuing the process. When you're in a good state and you could track those biofeedback markers, which I do on a weekly basis with all my, my um, clients, you're saying, all right, I'm pushing myself and I feel like I'm, I'm you know, giving my best effort, but I'm also in a healthy range and perspective. Yeah, I just think it's so layered. It's like an onion, right? So like you, you know, you're, you're, you're eating the right things and then all of a sudden you start sleeping better, right? So then you start sleeping better, your digestion gets better. Yes. And then, you, you know, you feel better during the day. You need less caffeine to get through the day uh, and you're only using it for performance reasons, not mm-hmm. to stay afloat throughout the day. And then, uh, you know, from there you start to grow muscle. Effect. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, uh, you know, I just wish people really understand how important that is and, uh, you know, I know a lot of, uh, you know, guys that come into the shop, like they want to get as big as possible, but I'll tell you what, when, uh, when I do active cardio and like, I can't do anything like 50%, mm-hmm. like, so if I go do cardio, like I just run, it's all or nothing. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, you know, my, my fiance likes to run, so we kind of compete against each other. Like, I'm not going to, you know, mosey through it. I'm, I'm going to race her. That's yeah. just how it is. And, uh, but when I'm doing that, I'm also squatting more than I've ever squatted. So maybe the, the max number isn't as high, but the actual the quality, repetition yeah. amount goes way up because my breathing capacity is better. Mm-hmm. So there's always pluses, you know, to, to being healthier. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of times, especially in the aspect of cardio, I have uh, clients and I have people all the time ask me on Instagram or whatever it may be, what is, is my utility or what is my take on cardio? And you're doing cardio year round if you work with me. And it, it, it's not just cardio. So I, I don't, when we label that, I mean aerobic work. So it could be a bike ride. It could be a walk after dinner. So I, I really f- phrase it and I implement it differently with different people. So for my competitors, we'll do fasted cardio. It's, it's most effective for cognitive ability, has no benefit over fed cardio, but you put yourself in a good perspective. You start your day off in a regimented structured fashion and make sure they get outside and do it. We get some vitamin D photosynthesis. You get the greenhouse effect of being in nature and, and all those benefits that come with it. Now for my soccer moms, they're busy with their kids. They're trying to get them off. Hey, eat breakfast, then do cardio. Or I'll, I'll implement with certain people where it's a lifestyle intervention and they don't even realize it's cardio. I say after dinner every night, I want you to go with your husband, take a break from everything you're doing and take a 10 minute walk with him. And, and that's more of just a bonding experience. Let's, let's let out, you know, let's also regulate our blood sugar. There's, there's different things. I'm trying to get their step count, their activity levels, but I'm doing it in an implicit way where honestly, uh, I, I schedule a need. So I track need all the time, both myself and with my clients, just to make sure, especially in a deficit that we're not lowering that because, um, down regulation in need actually account for 80 to 85% of the metabolic adaptation or the lowering of calorie expenditure that you experience during a diet. So how I do that is I'm trying to keep a maintenance level of, of, uh, caloric burning, but also of calorie expenditure through neat. So what I'll do is sometimes with my women, I kind of trick them into doing this or sometimes with my guys, I'll say, listen, I want you to do one household task every single night after dinner. So if it's sweeping the house, if it's vacuuming, if it's, uh, you know, cleaning your, your apartment, um, and they always ask me, what does that have to do with nutrition and training? And I said, I just want to keep you on your feet for at least 10 to 15 minutes after your meal. 
what I mean? It's going to help with digestion. It's going to help with blood sugar management. You know, Stan always says that three 10-minute walks has the same effect as metformin, which is, you know, glucophage is, is uh, type 2 diabetic medication for helping to clear out glucose from the liver. So doing those little things, no matter what way I phrase it, cardio is going to be in there because I want the aerobic benefits. I want the benefits of mitochondrial biogenesis. I want the benefits to overall work capacity because the better your heart is, the lower your resting heart rate is, the more that you could crank up your training, your training volume, your training intensity, your, your um, you know, repetitions per set and not exhaust yourself because we've all been in a squat set or we've all seen someone that has incredible strength, but their body gasses out before their muscles do or their, their lungs gas out before their, That's their body me every does. every time. Yeah. yeah. And it's a limiting factor. It's, it's, it's holding you back. So just doing a little bit. I'm not saying overdoing it. You know, I have some certain strength athletes that I work with and it's not like we're doing 30 minutes or an hour cardio day. They're not my bikini competitor. But at the same time, it's still implemented into their program because it has so many benefits. Yeah, there's just so many things racked in my head right now that I want to talk about, and I don't even know where to start on them. We have different diet plans um, you know, that we discussed a little bit. Uh, something that's been pretty trendy right now is intermittent fasting. Yeah. Uh, it's been very, very trendy. Uh, however, I think the execution rate on it is probably like 0%, or maybe 1% of people doing it, the, I think, the way that it was truly intended to be implemented. Okay. Uh, what's your thoughts on it? Do you use it? Yes. Yeah, so honestly, uh, I went through a period of time. I was traveling with my previous company excessively and I did about a year and a half of intermittent fasting. Doesn't mean I did it every day, but at least four to five times a week. And the reason I did it was I had a cognitive benefit from the fasting period itself. It made me a lot more productive, but I did it in a different way than a lot of people promote. So uh, right now you see with intermittent fasting, the 16-8 window, which was kind of popularized by like lean gains back in the day. And although that's a great philosophy, um, I don't believe in training fasted for most people. I don't do it myself. Uh, I just see um, a detriment to my performance, but also there is so much research about protein distribution and timing and how many protein pulses that you should be having, which is really shown to see or shown to be at least three to four times a day. So I see a lot of people utilizing this intermittent fasting uh, phenomenon. They do it because it's easy to dietarily adhere and they can fit into their schedule and they feel like, you know, there are benefits to satiety um, and things of that sort. There's autophagy benefits or the, the turnover of cells. There's so many benefits to it, but then they gorge on meals because now they can have these larger meals. So sometimes you see people do like the OMAD diet, which is a form of intermittent fasting, one meal a day. Mm. So they'll get all their calories. So say their maintenance calorie threshold is 3,000 calories. Do a 3,000 calorie meal. Now, A, that that has a lot of digestive um, drawbacks. Second, a lot of times they're not really looking at the macronutrient distribution or the composition of those things. So you're taking in 200 grams of protein, 500 grams of, of carbs and 150 grams of fat. So the assimilation rates of these things are kind of skewed. Um, and then also you're only getting one protein pulse. So when I do intermittent fasting and when I did, I did four protein pulses. So I broke my fast with something quick digesting, like a whey isolate, some MCT powder. I just wanted f- quick fuel substrates to stimulate that protein synthesis as quick as possible. And also realizing that I wanted something that easily digested and kind of created a, a protein pulse or an MPS response and then came down quickly. So something like a whey isolate is going to take, you know, 60 to 90 minutes to digest. Um, Whereas if I had done a steak, it's me digesting for five to six hours. Now, what happens with that? If I take a huge meal of steak and high fats and and carbohydrates, now the the fats are slowing down the assimilation of carbohydrates. So glucose is being, you know, utilized or, or 
flowing through your bloodstream for hours. And then my next meal is in two and a half hours or two hours. And now they're compounding on each other. So digestively, that has um, drawbacks. And then also your postprandial blood glucose levels. So if you were to look at postprandial is essentially the state in which after you eat. So two to two and a half hours later, I'm looking at my blood sugar and it's still 120 to 130. Well, I don't want to eat again until it's under 100. Right. You know, it's under what would be considered a baseline for a type 2 diabetic. So for me, generally my um, faster waking glucose is between 80 and 85 uh, milligrams per deciliter. So I want it back in that range. So I'll use something quick digesting like a protein, and then I would do another three meals after that. So four protein uh, containing meals, you know, I would train within that window. So generally I'd have a meal, I would train, have a post-workout meal, and then two more meals after that. And I found that to be really beneficial from a time perspective, especially. But the implementation of that makes sense. Like if you break it down, yeah, it logistically, just, yeah, it just makes sense, right? Like you don't want to break your fast with the carb meal if you're not training right then, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. So it just doesn't make sense. So we have customers that'll take, you know, let's say they eat three meals a day. We have a lot of um, like working class, blue collar, yeah. uh, you know, electricians, plumbers, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they eat three meals a day. Uh, they eat breakfast before they go. They eat lunch sometime during the day and they eat a dinner at night. And, uh, you know, these guys will just cut out their first meal. And then, you know, but all they're doing is reducing their caloric intake. Yeah. And, and that's that's where people see a lot of benefit. But at the same time, short had, term. yes, absolutely. Because how sustainable is it to take a third of your calories out? Really, if you look at dietary studies, we're looking at like a 20 to 25% calorie deficit that you want to induce, not 33% or more. Because a lot of people have a heavy breakfast. You know, they'll do like a light lunch and then a heavier dinner. So say that breakfast accounts for 40% of their calories. How long can someone go? That's a very aggressive calorie deficit. That would that's You would consider that what's called a, a rapid fat loss phase to induce a 35 to 40% calorie deficit deficit that's supposed to be done for about two to three weeks in the research yeah you know yeah and that's a big flaw that we see with it um is there any other way that you would implement it yeah absolutely so it's, it's really person dependent it's based on their schedule so what a lot of people have or what i have a lot of people do is uh, i have a lot of teachers that i work with um whether it be instructors um it be dance teachers or, or really just in schools so what they find is that there are a lot more um keyed in cognitively if they wake up they go instead of having breakfast and slowing themselves down like i talked about that serotonin release from carbohydrate ingestion early what i'll have them do is just fast throughout the morning um so i'll have them say that their first meal is generally at nine o'clock in the morning you know after first period um whether it be skipping breakfast and then starting a eating window from like 12 to 8 or sometimes i'll even have them go to the end of their work day they kind of like eating later at night they're you know they want to be really productive within the um the schedule that they have so they work seven to two so after they finish up school work for the day then we'll start their eating period and they'll eat from 2 to 10 p.m and so that allows them to have better digestion first and foremost because you want to be in a a parasympathetic state so if you're rushing in between meals this was something i did as a sales rep and that's why i stopped eating for a long period of time when I was traveling because I'd be running in between meetings and I'd be in a sympathetic state, you know, fight or flight. Like I'm trying to get a sale, you know, I'm trying to, you know, speak with customers. I'm, I'm engaged with people. And then all of a sudden I'm trying to stop and jump in my car and eat a meal real quick. I noticed digestively it just wasn't working because if you look at the autonomic nervous system, it's broken into two functions. It's your sympathetic nervous system, your fight or flight response, or your parasympathetic, your rest and digest. So you want to be parasympathetic when you eat. So I find with a lot of my busy teachers or busy businessmen and things of that sort that once they're done with work, their stress is alleviated for the day. So it's like I already got my, my big tasks done for the day. And now when I eat, I'm going to be able to sit down, relax, digest, chew, which is really, really, really important for digestion and assimilation. And they get a better digestive response from that food. And then also it's shortening that eating window. So the average 
person eats between 12 and 14 hours a day. Now, if we can just compress that window, it doesn't have to be eight, eight hours. So intermittent fasting is generally eight hours, but I practice something called time-restricted feeding, um, which a lot there's a lot of research on as well. And that would be utilizing at least a 12 on 12 off. So you eat for 12 hours of the day, and then you, you take 12 hours off. So how would you implement that with somebody who's eating 3,000 calories a day? Um, you talked about uh, protein pulsing, yeah. right? Uh, wouldn't condensing their time frame and keeping their calories up cause issues with that? Well, protein pulsing, um, there is a response mechanism to actually ingesting protein, getting muscle protein synthesis response. So you're going to see that generally between two and a half and three hours is the length of protein response. So that's why I really, I personally practice time-restricted feeding because I'll eat four meals a day spaced out every three hours. Okay. So I'm getting that that response. It's it's going down and then I'm triggering it again because if I were to, that's the big issue with doing like um, really big feedings or doing too frequent of feedings. You know, some bodybuilders I hear they eat seven or eight times a day, but they're doing it in 14 to 16 hours. And despite the fact that they're doing it, not with the intention of just pulsing protein, they're doing it to get a caloric, you know, threshold there and a huge calorie um, surplus. You're you're overlapping that protein pulse and you're not getting that full muscle protein synthesis effect. So it wouldn't be ideal to implement it that way that you were just talking about with eating from six to 10. No, no it's not ideal. So yeah, I wouldn't possible. do that that short of a yeah. period. So generally like when, when I have someone that's going to eat in an eight hour window, I'm doing a meal, you know, right at the start, maybe a meal three hours later and another meal two and a half hours later. So I'm still getting that, that, that length of time that's enough for them to have another muscle protein synthesis response. Okay. What about performance athletes? Are you still uh, implementing or recommending any type of intermittent fasting for them? Personally, I don't. But say that they're, remember, everything has to go lifestyle factors first. So it's scheduling, it is preference, things of that sort. So if a person tells me, hey, listen, you know, this is what's going to fit my schedule best. Generally, what I'll do is I, I undulate calories between training days and off days. And now with that, on their training day, say they're training four days a week, I might have them do five meals a day spread out over 15 hours. Or I might have them do four, four meals a day spread out or 12 hours. But on their off days, maybe we'll condense that to three meals and they'll eat in an eight hour window. And so they can be more productive. And I'll make sure that those three days are scheduled into their schedule on those three busiest work days. Yeah, it's interesting. I never, I never really thought about that. Condensing the meals, you know, going from five to three. Uh, anytime I had an off day, I just ate this, you know, what was projected. Yeah. You know, and then obviously, you know, you dip down carbs, you might increase fats a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I never really thought about that from an athlete standpoint of just yeah, making so their lives easier. Yeah, you're macronutrient cal- uh, cycling. What I do is is calorie and macronutrient cycling. So yeah. for instance, on a training day, we're going to need a more carbohydrates and honestly, you could use more calories. So say that a person's base caloric intake is 3,000 calories at maintenance. So maybe I'll do 3,500 calories on a training day and then 2,500 calories on an off day. And then we can divide that out into the amount of meals per those days. But at the same time, now I'm utilizing more of fuel substrate during training. Also, we have to think about the fact that I'm always going to include an intra-workout, whether it's just uh, an essential amino acid blend with something like sea salt or some source of salt, um, or it's going to be really extrapolated. Like I'm going to use something like a glycerol powder, a highly brand cyclic dextrin or carbolin, a high molecular weight carbohydrate. Um, I'm going to use some citrulline, some vasodilation agents, some nutrient transporters, uh, and the essential amino acids combined. But it's all person-dependent and goal-dependent. But within that, I have to realize that that's a calorie allotment that I generally don't have within my meals. So for instance, if I add in another 100 grams of carbohydrates and 25 grams of protein from a hydrolyzed protein source, that's another 500 calories. 
off of my baseline diet. So now I have to include that into my weekly because it is about daily balance, but it's more about weekly balance. Things don't happen in, in the span of 24 hours. So if I'm taking in just from that intra workout period 500 more calories, I have to technically take off some days, you know, 500 calories. To, to make sure that to we're in energy balance. So that's where I'll really utilize. Some people, it's it's more complicated where with some of my athletes, I, I train two Olympians, uh, you know, competitors. And so with them, their calories are much higher are on training ta- days. Are you talking about like Men's physique, like, okay. Olympia, yeah, yeah. So, so bodybuilders, yeah, no, 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 yeah. not Olympians, okay. like to that that <laughs> athletic capacity. But two guys that have competed in the men's physique Olympia, okay. Um, and so with them, it's it's very specific. So on their training days, they might be at three thousand calories, give or take. Um, and then maybe on their off days, they're at two thousand calories. But they're in a dieting phase, and what I'm looking for is them to hit twenty five hundred calories. So on those training days, that five hundred calorie increase from that 2,500 calorie deficit that we're at or that baseline is going to be through an intra workout or maybe through some, um, you know, extra carbs post-workout to take advantage of that, um, uptake and that increased nutrient absorption from glute four activation that comes from training. Um, but then with other people, I might utilize an approach where the only differential is just their intra workout. So their calories, the only difference is, and it's easily implementable. Hey, listen, you're gonna eat the same meals. Everything's gonna be easy to follow. You could prep for the week. That's the biggest thing, you know, besides like a dietary adherence, meal prepping is, is one of the number one ways to ensure that you follow a plan. Going back to Stan, he only said compliance is the science. Yeah, and and honestly, it's quote. true. Yeah, yeah, honestly, it's the truth. Uh, so you're talking about prepping physique, guys. Uh, just out of curiosity, I've never done a physique show. Um, you know, I, I have a few friends that competed. Uh, one of our, our athletes uh, turned pro a couple of years ago in Classic. And before that, he did physique shows for a long time. Um, how low are these guys going in calories? Honestly, it's, it's super person dependent. It's weight dependent. Um, and honestly, it matters how much they suffer from metabolic adaptation. So the down regulation in uh, hormonal, you know, balance in energy expenditure, what their needs at. So it's very person dependent, but honestly, there's guys that I, I see at 1600 calories and people would, would, you know, they wouldn't even fathom that. But when you're looking at the extremities, this is not the average. Right. When I, when I talk about when I've had Three an outliers. athlete Dexed at 3.8, not that Dexed or bod pod or body impedance testing is exactly accurate but even when they're calibrating at four percent consistently you know from a 15 percent body fat level to four percent there's going to be extremes that you need to push the body through now mind you when i say 1600 calories that is for a period of time it could be for a week it could be for two weeks it's it's not throughout the entire prep so i've had guys start preps at 4800 calories and get down to the last say four weeks the first two weeks of those four weeks they get down to like 1600 calories and we get them right where they need it to be and then i reverse diet them into the show to dissipate fatigue to help with um restoring glycogen gonna help with training performance i'm bringing down those excessively high cortisol levels which dieting is shown to induce or to elevate cortisol so now i'm manipulating variables and they're kind of getting into the show instead of looking run down you you see some guys that they diet right into the show and they try to carb load and their body can't carb load. And it's a, it's a mix of things. It's being overly depleted first and foremost. It is being highly stressed. It's having their nutrient partitioning uh, disrupted by cortisol, dysregulation, dehydration. But it's also excessive muscle damage. So if you're um, doing too much eccentric work in, in the gym, now it's impairing your body's ability to uptake glycogen and actually store it intermuscularly. And then also if you're doing cardio which is glucose intensive, you do low, you know, low inten- uh, intensity, steady state cardio, it's working on a glycolytic pathway. So now you're burning up the glycogen you're trying to take in. So it's almost counterproductive. So that's where 
I try to reverse them out. And what happens with a reverse diet? You increase calories and you lower expenditure through steps and through cardio. So I'm lowering the, the cardio, I'm lowering the steps, and I'm trying to just coast them into the show. But two weeks prior to that, they might be they might go into the show at 3,000 calories, but two weeks prior to that, they were at 1,600. It's interesting you bring that up. Uh, I think episode four, uh, we had our friend that owned the, the gym that we were talking yeah, about absolutely. Uh, prior. And, uh, you know, I saw him uh, two weeks out from him turning pro. I forget what show he did that he turned pro at. And, uh, you know, he looked good. He always looks good. And and then I saw him, like, you know, a couple of days before he left. He looked he looked 10 pounds heavier. Yeah, night and day difference. Like, what, what did you do, dude? I bet like, he breathes his calories. Take? Like, what, what's going on here? And, uh, he's, well, his thing was, no, nah, you know, calories stayed the same. He just, uh, he took some time off and he rested. Absolutely. And, and his body just responded that fast. And mm-hmm. it, he just looked like a completely different person. Yeah, I always tell people, and there's a quote, stress is stress. So we have to look at it from a psychological perspective, a physical perspective, mental, emotional. Um, but these are all stressors in the body. A deficit is perceived by the body as a starvation mode. You know, you're um, you're starved or you're going to potentially go into famine. So those are survival mechanisms from thousands of years ago. So that's it's it's showing through your body that it's a stress. And then you add in cardio. Then you add in training. And, and sometimes we, we extract or we, um, you know, kind of like, try to separate things out like oh you know i'm stressed because of work or i'm stressed because my relationship not training because i love training but training is a stress it's a physical stress that's demanded on the body to force an adaptation you know what i mean but if your body you're providing a stimulus that your body cannot adapt from doing too much volume things like that um training too frequently too often too long then all of a sudden your body perceives that as something that a isn't necessary and b it needs to protect itself from so you know, sometimes just taking your foot off the gas, especially towards the end, when you're susceptible to muscle loss, to injury, to things like that, you're a very low body fat percentage. Sometimes doing less is more. And that's honestly, I have a pro right now that I, I just, I got on a consult call with him last night because I could tell he was wavering mentally and physically. And um, he had went away for the weekend and he ended up cheating on his diet. And that's not like him. He's Better a high level wife. athlete. Yeah, no, he was with his girlfriend for, for her birthday, actually. But he, but he had hit me up and he said, listen, I fucked up. And he was like really down in the dumps about it. And I said, all right, well, let's, let's get on a console call. I just want to see your mind it's at. And what had happened was the week previously he had went out and, and drank and he didn't tell me. And so what he did was he, was, he had said in his last check and he kind of felt run down. So I had, you know, um, he had checked in on Friday. So a week after having left and, um, he was feeling like a little bit fatigued. So I, I monitored things in the diet, some with the cardio, pulled things back. But what he didn't tell me was after he had went away and drank for the weekend, he dropped his calories more and increased his cardio and then did two-a-day sessions. That was None of that was prescribed in his training. So all of a sudden he went from training what I had him on five sessions per week. He did 13 sessions throughout that week. Makes and sense. Yeah. yeah, yeah, of course. Let me just do more. Did 13 sessions, dropped his calories more, and then said he felt trashed. And then he gave in to another, another eating fest. So I got on the phone with him yesterday and I said, listen, you know what, just give me a rundown of your week. I want to hear about everything. And he's like, well, you know, I was stressed with this, with that, you know, um, work situation. And um, he goes, yeah. And I said, but what about your training? And he's like, well, you know, I've been training hard. And I said, well, what type of stress were you inducing? Are you following the program? I've, I've lowered your volume. I told him to cut back 30%. I was trying to get him to do a deload. And he goes, uh, yeah, I didn't follow that. And I said, so you've been focusing only on the psychological and the um, mental stress that you had and you thought that was to blame, but you took what I said was a 30% reduction in training volume and actually almost quadrupled it. Exact opposite. And he didn't see how that initially, and then he realized we started going every factor. All right. So you're lacking energy. You're feeling increased hunger. Your mood is erratic. 
okay, so this isn't just from the mental stress of your job. You've had that for a long time. What was the only factor that changed within the last week? The increased training volume, the increased frequency, and the lower calories. So I had him take, I had to convince him. It was a 45 minute conversation. I told him, listen, you're going to take the next couple days off. And he's like, oh, dude, I'm in a dieting phase. I'm real close to photo shoots. And I said, you're going to look better. We're going to dissipate some water. I want you to send me check-in pictures every single day. Um, you're going to see that your scale weight, because his scale weight had climbed up, and it's just from, from cortisol imbalance. You know, he's holding water. You know yeah. what I mean? The body's just trying to, to fight. And so I guarantee that in a few days he'll see that, but it's just easing off the gas, and sometimes it's more of a mental thing than it is a physical thing. It's mind-blowing to me that people pay other people to coach them, but then they're not transparent about it. Like It's hard. Like, yeah, but... But if I'm paying you for something, like I don't work for you. You work for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So if I I screw up with what my plan is, like that's on me. So, but I also see from the other perspective. So like, for instance, like in his case, he had went off the diet. So now he thought instead of telling him and Brandon's plan was this, now I have to increase that plan because I overdid it calorically. And I told him, but but that's what he's paying you for. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's like you need to make those adjustments and you can't make those adjustments. If I don't like, know. Yeah, and, and if he drank that one day, you would maybe you would have said, okay, hydrate up today, you know, take the yeah. day off from training and let's hit it hard tomorrow. Exactly. And then you go right back to the normal plan. But instead, he tried to hide it. Be, I, I feel like a lot of guys don't want to, uh, you know, they don't want to cave to the fact that they may not be as strong mentally as they want to be. I think, you know what? It is like Everything in this, ego, in this industry is ego. Uh, if we look at it from a social media perspective, a competitive perspective, or even just like your regular gym goer, why does someone exert themselves so much in the gym essentially when they first get in or why do they, we see these guys doing half reps on squats or or you know partial reps on bench it's to impress other people and that's why when you hit on before this is an intrinsic process for me i don't need someone in the gym with me I, I do a lot of social media stuff but it's more from an educational perspective um however i do this for me i do this because this was something that helped me get over childhood traumas helped me get over um insecurities that I had, uh, an eating disorder. It, it was something that I really related to and I just became in, engulfed in. And eventually it led me to, instead of going from LSAT, I, I went into the supplement industry and took a completely different career path because I was that passionate about it. But a lot of people, they sure, don't do it for themselves. Pumped. Oof, that was a rough conversation. I told them, you know what? I told them from when I first started, supplements. I told them I was studying from LSAT and I went for that interview and I had already been working at G-Force and I went for that interview with Lone Star and I said, listen, if I get this, I will give it five years. And if I'm not successful at the end of those five years, I'll be 26 years old. I can go right back to law school. And uh, I was shunned by, by a percentage of my family that didn't understand. And they didn't understand for years until I was traveling the country and, and doing very well. And I was fortunate in, in the fact that I, I was mentored by some great people and I got a lot of good connections. And I had accounts that were loyal to me since day one like you. Yeah. And uh, I've been fortunate to make a, a full-time career out of this. I think you can be so successful doing anything if, if you're, you're passionate good at about it. Yeah. yeah, if you're it, passionate. You just have to want to be the best. You know, if it's personal training, you know, work your way up, start training, Absolutely. you know, athletes or, or actors and, you know, you know, people with higher discretionary income. Yeah. You know, don't, don't stay at the bottom tier of personal training. No, but training you start somewhere life. and yeah. you work your way up. So just like I said, I started with two states. Um, I started with New Jersey and Pennsylvania. So you were one of my first territories. And um, I've been up to 50 plus because plus would be my international accounts. Right. So at this point, you extrapolate that out. All right, the course is seven, eight years. I've grown this much within this business. You know what I mean? But I had to start somewhere. So I had the lack of ego to realize, hey, I don't have the skills, I don't have the experience, and I don't have the resume to take on that much. Yeah, would I have wanted to make more the first couple of years? Without a doubt. But now I'm at the point where I handle an entire country and I have all the responsibility of every account that we have. And I'm fortunate to be able to say that. Yeah, I mean, the, the possibilities are endless in the position that you're in now. And that, that's a cool part. 
Um, all right, so let's uh, let's wrap it up here. I feel like we can kind of talk all day, and we might Absolutely. even after this. <laughs> uh, so if our anybody viewing this wants to follow you, uh, is Instagram the best way? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a Instagram and Facebook account. My Instagram is at Brandon DeCruz underscore. And then my Facebook account is Brandon DeCruz. I post daily uh, a lot of educational posts uh, into physiology, into uh, especially the physiology of fat loss. It's one of my um, main passions in life. Uh, obviously, you'll see things on supplementation uh, with my company, Nova Farm. Um, and then anything else, you guys have any questions, please DM me. Like I'm super interactive with people, whether it be at customers accounts, uh, you know, just random followers. Um, and then if you guys ever, especially customers from, from James's, um, shop coalition customers, you guys ever have diet related questions and stuff. The staff there is incredible, but if you ever have anything really specific, feel free to either you refer them to me or, or just contact me yourself. I have accounts honestly all over the country that sometimes they have such a specific question and whether it be on our supplements themselves or even nutritional interventions. And, and I try to answer them to the best of my abilities and you're doing seminars i do do seminars and then i also do uh, online uh training so that's a separate business that i have and i also do nutritional consultations so sometimes someone doesn't want me to take over their diet and i understand they want autonomy which we all like or maybe they like to learn on their own a little bit absolutely right? and i i encourage that 100 percent. and that's why i put out so many educational posts but i do do phone consultations and zoom consultations as well so if someone has something specific whether it be uh, blood work analysis uh nutritional um and supplementation you know recommendations or questions or things of that sort, or just want to go over something very specific, like a topic. I do break it down within a, a 30 minute to 60 minute consultation based on their needs. Cool. All right, guys, give Brandon a follow, uh, wealth of knowledge. So check it out.